Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Catholic Link podcast, the podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Rob Adams, and we are joined again today by Father Joseph Rampino, and we are going to talk about the history of priesthood again. How are you, Father? I'm doing well, doing well. Well, last time we actually got to talk about how vocations worked in the priesthood. So, yeah, wild stuff. Right. Uh, way different than what we do today, where we give vocation <laughs> stories and like, we have a girlfriend and you leave the girlfriend because she says, no, you're called to be a priest. No, none of that. None of that. No, not in the ancient church. In the ancient church, your people capture you and drag you kicking and screaming out of your monastery or uh, your parents offer you to the church. Very, very different. As as crazy as that sounds, it does match up with scripture. Uh, The letter to the Hebrew (laughs) says no one takes the honor of the priesthood upon himself. So the church puts it on you, literally. That's right. Well, last time we ended talking about the the fact that the, all the priests live together, right? And that the idea is that we live together in the bishop's house to learn how to be good Christians, not really to get pastoral training. And, and what right. you said last time, if I can get it right, was that the primary pastoral task of your priest was to serve at the liturgy, the one liturgy right. that right, the right, bishop right. offered. The one diocesan liturgy. And I think as we see... Um, of course, across the Middle Ages, the bishops aren't quite as present in those cathedral liturgies, but the, the canons of the cathedral are. And that cathedral liturgy really is the life of the whole local church. So we have great examples uh, from across uh, Christian Europe at the time. And by now, we're just talking about the Latin West. There are other things we could talk about in other parts of the Christian world, but talking about the, the um, increasingly uh, unique uh, Roman heritage, uh, Latin West, um, you do have the cathedral liturgy as the central, uh, the central part of, uh, the life of the diocese. So that's baptisms, that's, uh, masses, that's the liturgy of the hours, all of that stuff. But what we begin to see is there's actually uh, a divide that, that starts taking place between this planned thing that the church has created and, uh, there's something that is thought out. The church has, has legislated about the life of the cathedral and of the collegiate churches. You might have a few of those in a diocese that are basically modeled on the cathedral in a slightly smaller uh, setting. But then at the same time, we start to come across rural churches. And rural churches appear uh, in strange ways at strange times. They appear in the, in the records without a whole lot of explanation. Sometimes you hear that a particularly zealous uh, missionary bishop would found uh, churches and chapels and oratories throughout his whole diocese, and then you'd never hear about them again, or they'd disappear for 300 years and then later pop up as a parish church. But you have a smattering of these little rural churches, uh, little rural chapels, which are not established as parishes the way we think of them, right? You couldn't have baptisms there. You couldn't have weddings there or other sacraments. They'd just be little outposts for prayer. And then on the other side, we have what are called the proprietary churches, which are a fascinating thing, where um, lay people, particularly wealthy lay people, noblemen uh, and, and others of means, would build churches on their property and either entice clergy away from the cathedral by promising higher salaries Uh-oh. Or, or by convincing bishops to ordain their friends. And in, sometimes, uh, some, in some cases, their servants. We actually have records of people of nobles uh, having, you know, a dozen of their servants ordained priests 
to serve liturgy for them in their own house, in their own castle. Um, and this would become a parish. So now all of a sudden, so these would pop up wherever there was money, wherever there were means, and wherever people wanted the convenience of saying, well, I don't really want to go to the cathedral. I don't want to be a part of the big liturgy. I want liturgy at my house. <laughs> I want liturgy where I am. Sounds uh, like it of, sounds like the world uh, after COVID. I, yeah. You know, a lot of all the parishioners don't, you know, people don't want to go to church anymore. They want you to bring them communion yeah. in their home, but they and are you know, quite happy to have 50 people at their own house. So, yeah, that does happen from time to time. I won't I won't judge too much uh, those adjudicate those situations in the abstract. But, but no, uh, I mean, so let me make sure I get this right. So it sounds like yeah. the collegiate churches are run by a, a community of priests living together. Right. So we're not right. at the cathedral. Please. But we've got like a group of priests sort of copying the cathedral model. Correct. So these might be secondary population centers. They might be shrines. The monasteries act a little bit like this. So that does happen. And then the rural churches are really just kind of like pop-ups that are run by one or two priests. And they're really not supposed to be doing a lot of sacrament stuff there. Right. They're not supposed to. But the bishops don't always know how many of these there are. Right. So the bishops of the time don't really know how many rural churches there are, how many rural clergy there are. Um, so, for example, when St. Boniface uh, goes on his preaching missions in Germany, he writes to the Pope again and again, saying, I keep discovering these rural churches. Nobody knew they were here. I keep finding priests who say they were ordained and they're saying they're celebrating mass, but they have families. or They're, you know, living uh, in uh, like not according to Christian law. And uh, he asked the Pope for permission uh, to avoid eating with them, <laughs> which is really interesting. He, said, he says to the Pope, I don't think I'm permitted by conscience to eat with rural clergy because their lives are so bad. I refuse to do this. Uh, please <laughs> support. Um, <laughs> or he asked for permission to compel them to live in community uh, so that they'll live good lives. Um, yeah, so we discover these rural houses uh, kind of after the fact. And nobody really knows where some of these churches come from. Some of them seem to have been one-off projects by individual bishops. Some of them seem to be these proprietary coming from nobles. But the church kind of wakes up to this and says, we have to do something about this situation. We have to regularize everything. And if you've ever studied the early Middle Ages, when you hear the word standardization, you think Charlemagne. That is the guy who does all of this. And in fact, he does. So one of his big projects is to try and uh, regularize the lives of clerics and monks, uh, because things by 800 had gotten so confused that people weren't sure who was legitimately a priest, who was a monk, who was a diocesan cleric. No one knew the differences between these people. And even the clerics themselves did not always know whether they were monks or diocesan clergy or what. No one seemed to know. And so the solution... Council of Aachen, uh, which uh, you know got promulgated after the death of Charlemagne, uh, the conclusion of the Council of Aachen was to entrust uh, the monks to Saint Benedict of Anien, uh, who basically says from now on every monastery follows the rule of Saint Benedict. Period, because they weren't all at the time. And then there was a rule written for everybody else. All of the diocesan were to follow what was called the Rule of Aachen, which basically looks like, in many ways the rule of St. Benedict, where oh. all of these clergy are to live together in the cathedral, in the house of the bishop, to celebrate the liturgy. They can go out and anoint the sick if they need to during the day. They can go out and teach if they need to during the day, but they have to live together 
and come back for every meal. For example, they actually have punishments for eating outside of the clerical house, which is hilarious to me. Or eating alone in your room actually would be punished by fines or beatings. Um, but beatings. everyone, yeah, yeah, if you were incorrigible. Um, but the idea was priests, in order to be healthy, have to live together for the sake of their primary task, which is prayer, which is liturgical prayer. And in fact, the prologue to this says that if any priests are to be found living alone or in ones or in twos or threes, that they are to be taken from their houses and compelled into uh, community houses so that they no longer embarrass the church. Wow. Really, really strong language. It's it's incredible how different uh, the perspective was. But the idea was that the priority of the church was holiness of priests, sacredness. uh, So holiness of priests for the sake of the sacred liturgy. And that if that happened, then whatever pastoral ministry you could do in the meantime would be that much more fruitful and the gospel would be that much more credible. Uh, and you would be uh, you would be much more effective in evangelization that way. Because that was the model of evangelization, not spread to the winds, ones and twos, as far as you can go, but build the community, live the Christian life as well as you can in that place. And then when you have enough to found another community, you can go and do that and trust that the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. See, this is really interesting to me. Um, we only got a couple of minutes, so I can't go into a ton of this. But uh, lest we think this is only something that existed a long time ago, early Middle Ages, Charlemagne, Council right. Lock-in. Um, so I actually have to say, this happened in my diocese. So oh, yeah? the Diocese of Lexington was founded in 1988. And when our second bishop, Bishop Ronald Gaynor, took over, he found that we had a number of missions, churches, altars, uh, that were not established by canon law. A priest <laughs> bought a trailer and set up an altar from like a church that closed in Boston. And I think, I think it was like five or six chapels and churches the bishop didn't even know about. And that doesn't count other property that the diocese had. Um, wow. And even in my own parish here, we had a case where one of our bishops closed a mission and one of our priests on his own decided he was going to open it back up. So- wow. This this model of the of the the early Middle Ages still existed. It still exists now. Um, but the other thing I'd point out, I think, is really really interesting, is it feels like the church is fighting almost tooth and nail to keep its model of what it is to be a priest. And, right. and this idea of the spreading out of like tiny little parishes, tiny little missions, and the necessity of both toning down the number of priests. So you automatically lose community by doing this, but you also lower the way the liturgy is celebrated. Liturgy gets reduced to the bare minimum for validity. And this is where we start to get low mass. We start to get mass. That's really fast. It's where we get daily mass. Um, So it feels like the church is kind of fighting pretty hard to hold on to this, but it's like, we're trying to make do with the reality we actually do have in front of us. Yeah, there's a tension there between what the church knows is the ideal and what seems to be uh, the lived results. So there is a tension. And we'll actually see when we talk a little more about where things go in the high Middle Ages and Renaissance, uh, we'll see that tension and we'll see kind of further compromises made to try and uh, preserve what is essential, uh, even though the lived situation is demanding things that would um, not necessarily support that, uh, that vision, but yeah, I think that's an accurate an accurate read of the situation at the time. Well, that's awesome. Well, that gives us a good setup for our next one. Uh, we're probably <laughs> at time right now, but thanks again for coming on, Father Rampino. I think this is super cool. 
Um, the, I feel like this is the kind of thing I have to think about over time because yeah. we're we're so <laughs> used to this story of like the church and the sacraments, or it's like it like it pops out of Jesus's head, and we just like keep it safe until he comes back. Wherein you know things changed and things developed, and that has consequences for the way we live our Christian life. So. It's so essential for us to know what were the things that have not changed since Christ gave them to us. There are essentials that are absolutely unchanging and that we can count on forever. Uh, but then what were the what were the other factors that changed around them so that we so that we have a better sense uh, of what has come to us from the Lord, which is so precious. Right. And I would just say I, I personally love reading conflicts now in the church through these lenses, these things that were going on a long time ago. That Very we helpful. might think are over and done with, but they keep popping up. They do. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been the Catholic Link Podcast. You can head on over to catholiclink.org and you can find all of our other media and material over there. Once again, thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next time.